Hello and welcome to this We Did It.Health broadcast. At We Did It.Health, we're working to create a he he healthy, happy, vegan, and plant-based world. We're doing that through building community and offering resources such as today's discussion to help you create relationships where you'll plant seeds of hopeful curiosity in others when they ask about a vegan or plant-based lifestyle. So be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We also invite you to join our community online so you can connect with others and find support and encouragement with like-minded members. So my name is Mariquita Solis, Mariquita Solis, and I'm, also, and I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Lee Edinger today, plant-based pediatrician to our program. So we're gonna be talking about plant-centric plant -centric nutrition basics for all ages and i'm very excited because it's very it's so important that we reach our children and that we educate their parents and so the word gets out for healthy healthy living and to start off with good habits as children so if you're watching please let us know where you're watching from and give Streamyard permission to use your name and please put your questions in the chat because dr lee is going to present a little slideshow for us. And after that, we'll be taking questions and comments. So welcome, Dr. Lee, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Marikita. Thank you so much for having me and really looking forward to sharing this talk and answering questions. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's get let's get down to the show. Are you ready? Okay, I'm going to pull it up. All right. And uh, for the audience, uh, once I start going here, I can't really see anything else on the screen. So if you're having any technical problems uh, or any issues, uh, please chat and Marikita will interrupt me and I can answer any questions or, or fix any technical problems. I hope you can see my laser pointer here. And uh, today what I'm gonna talk about is what is in our food. I talk to a lot of families and a lot of adults and a lot of kids, and uh, there's a lot of confusion and questions and even misinformation about nutrients in our food. So I really want to give everyone in the audience, in my practice, uh, the very basics so that you can understand when people are talking about like the next level up uh, about nutrition um, so that you really have a, a good understanding of the very basics uh, so that you can engage in those questions uh, that you might be asked about your food cho choices and uh, whatever might come up. So, and it's a very plant-centric. Uh, this isn't necessarily what you learned in school uh, or in elementary school when you were learning about foods. This is a more plant-centric uh, description of what is in our food and where we get our nutrients from. Okay. okay, so I hope to answer these questions about what is actually in our food. And then also, what is a calorie? I talked to a lot of adults that, that don't really know exactly what a calorie is. So it's so central to just about every conversation about food and nutrition. So I wanna make sure that the audience and my, my families that I work with know what a calorie is. All right, so food contains nutrients. This is a very basic definition. That are, and food is eaten by living creatures in order to maintain life, health, and growth. So one of the most important, or one of the primary uh, components of our food is water, good old H2O. It's really necessary for the proper function of all the cells in the body. We need water. If you don't Get enough water if you're dehydrated for example you could become very sick water is important for temperature regulation so we sweat and that sweat uh, leaves our body and pulls heat off of our body as the sweat evaporates and that can help us cool ourselves 
Um, water is very important for lubrication and cushioning throughout the body. If we didn't have water in our body, uh, we'd be kind of like this statue fountain, uh, very hard and immobile. But with uh, the proper amount of water in our body, we can move our body. Water is also important for elimination of waste. Now, I'm a pediatric kidney doctor, and we all make urine every day. And that is waste that our body doesn't need carried out on the water in our urine. So we need to have some extra water around so that we can get rid of the waste in our body. If you drink too much water, it just ends up getting flushed down the toilet with our urine. Another important component of our food is what we're going to talk about is fiber. And fiber is actually short for plant fiber. Fiber is the parts of plants that we cannot digest. It doesn't so much feed us, but it does feed our microbiome. That's all the bacteria and microorganisms that are in our gut. And there's a tremendous amount. Actually, you have more cells of bacteria and viruses and fungi and microorganisms in and on your body than you actually have cells of yourself, of what you consider you. Uh, we are a host for all these organisms and we should take care of them. We should be very hospitable. We should be good hosts and feed our microbiome and the microbiome gets fed with the fiber that we and uh, grows and replicates and actually helps us maintain good bowel health. And the fiber helps us have nice, soft, regular stools. If you're not getting enough fiber, then people can suffer from constipation, diverticulitis, uh, problems like that with their bowel health. So whenever we're talking about fiber, uh, we're talking about plant fiber. Um, muscle fiber is what's found in animal products and meat and uh, does not uh, do these same good things as plant fiber. And fiber is really, when people are talking about it, it's short for plant fiber. If you eat too much fiber, um, you're just going to poop that out. It's going to get flushed down the toilet. All right, next we're going to get into carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are chains of sugar molecule. It could be one sugar molecule, and that's just called sugar, uh, or it could be a long chains of, of sugar molecules, and those are called carbohydrates. And uh, it's an energy source for all cells of our body. The carbohydrates also feed our microbiome too. And did you know that an adult brain uses 130 grams of sugar per day just to think? So if you figure a weight of a deck of cards is about 100 grams of, of, of weight. Uh, so now you can picture hopefully what 130 grams of sugar per day that our brains need to think and all day and dream all night. All right, so what happens if you eat too much carbohydrates? Um, first, it's going to get stored in your muscles is a compound called glycogen. So the sugars are connected together and glycogen gets stored in the muscles to be used later, broken down into individual sugar molecules for muscle contractions. If you eat too much carbohydrates, that glycogen can also get stored in the liver, again, to be used and distributed by the liver later for when uh, energy is needed, perhaps like when you're sleeping and not eating. And then if you really overdo it on the carbohydrates, some of that is going to get converted into fat molecules, which will be get stored in the fat cells in your body, again, to be broken down and used later for energy. Let's talk about protein. Uh, some people think that this is the most important nutrient, but uh, it's not. They're all equally important and all have their important roles. Now, it's, just, it's interesting. Protein is built of chains of amino acids, and amino acids have nitrogen. We only get nitrogen in on the protein that we eat that's made up 
of amino acids, and we need nitrogen. So we need amino acids. Now there's nitrogen all over the place. It's all over in our air and in the soil, but the only way it really can get into our food supply is by bacteria in the soil called nitrogen fixing bacteria. They take the nitrogen from the air and from the soil and put it into a form that the plant's roots can absorb and that the plant can use. Actually with the amino acids that we can then eat the plants and get the amino acids, thereby getting the nitrogen, uh, or the animal can eat the plants and we can eat the animal uh, in an inefficient process. It's really much more efficient to go right to the plant source and get the amino acids and nitrogen. Now, what's uh, also neat uh, that I learned about as I was researching this uh, pathway is that there's another way that nitrogen can be fixed and made usable by plant roots, and that is by lightning. So there's nitrogen in the air, and during a lightning storm, uh, some of the lightning will turn uh, some nitrogen into this form in the air that's usable by the roots and the plants. And then the rain will drag that nitrogen down into the soil. So some of the nitrogen and some of the amino acids in your body actually indirectly came from lightning. That's I think that's pretty neat. All right, so what is the role once we get the nitrogen and the amino acids into our body? The nitrogen and the amino acids have many roles, and they are to build and repair body parts. Uh, amino acids play a role in many body processes also, such as, for example, the immune system and blood clotting. And they can also act as hormones and transporters in the body. So you can see there's varied roles for the uh, amino acids and protein that are absorbed in, by our um, digestion of the food that we eat. And what happens if you eat too much protein? Actually, some of it doesn't even get absorbed by your intestines and you poop it out. And then also we don't have a storage form for protein in our body and some of it is broken down. The nitrogen is taken off of the amino acids that aren't being used and the nitrogen is turned into ammonia and urea and urinated out. So also flushed down the toilet. And once the nitrogen is taken out, it's no longer a protein. It might be a, a carbohydrate or a fat. And then those proteins um, become the carbohydrates and fats. And those fats and, pro and carbohydrates can go elsewhere in the body and either be used for energy or in other roles of the, that I'm describing about how fat and um, carbohydrates are used. So in general, um, it's kind of surprising all these people that uh, are going out of their way to get so much more protein in their body. Most of it is probably... Uh, not being absorbed or being metabolized down when not being used. There's no storage form, and it might just end up as fat and carbohydrate anyway, which, um, depending on your school of thought, people might be avoiding the fat or carbohydrate anyway, but they're getting it in all the extra protein that they're eating. I actually was interviewed uh, a few months ago on a YouTube channel about um, called Vegan Linked, where I talked about an experiment I did, uh, my own nutrition experiment, that I also posted on the Vegan Linked channel, where I varied my protein intake over two days and measured the amount of nitrogen that was in my urine, uh, just to kind of see how much uh, the protein intake would affect the nitrogen going out. That's a very interesting uh, results that I put into a 15 minute video that you can see on the Vegan Linked channel that uh, Vegan Linked, uh, this guy named Jeff Adams was nice enough to allow me to share with his audience. So check that out 
if you want to learn more about what happens to extra protein that you eat and uh, where does it go in your body. All right, next I'll talk about fats, which are long chains of carbon atoms. And fat can certainly provide energy too. Uh, fat helps us absorb nutrients. So there are certain vitamins that are called fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. And the fat in our diet, in our stomach, helps us grab and absorb those nutrients from our food, vitamin A, D, E, and K, and other nutrients and minerals that might be fat-soluble. So we definitely need some fat in our body to help us absorb those nutrients. And uh, fat also helps us with temperature regulation and internal cushioning. So fat keeps our core temperature, uh, hopefully at a nice 98.6. Uh, certainly people who are carrying too much fat molecules, certainly people with obesity, are at greater risk of heat stroke and uh, being affected uh, by extreme heats. <clears throat> um, and then internal cushioning, we have fats in our joints and fat in our um, uh, cushioning our internal organs. And that's important also so that we don't get hurt as we're moving around and uh, moving our bodies through space. Uh, fat are also the building blocks of certain body parts and especially the brain. So you see, we need some fat in our diet for all these important roles. And what happens if you eat too much fat? Now you notice it goes to the same three organs, but in a little different order in that if you eat too much fat, it will first be stored in fat cells, again, to be used later uh, for uh, energy, hopefully. Uh, if you eat too much fat, the fat will go into your muscles. And so that is called intramyocellular lipids. So fat droplets that are in the muscles and the muscle can use the fat for energy, but this is the cause of insulin resistance. And it kind of makes sense. If the muscle is using fat for energy, for contraction and for moving, then it doesn't need to use the sugar. So there are signals within the muscle cells that say, hmm, I'm working on the fat here. I'm using these fat droplets in my muscle cell. I don't need that sugar molecule that's passing by in the bloodstream. So I'm gonna be insulin resistant. Uh, insulin is the key that unlocks the door that opens up a way for sugar to move into the muscle cell. But the fat in the muscle is using for energy, so the fat cell doesn't need, I'm sorry, the muscle cell doesn't need the sugar. So it says, let's let that sugar molecule pass to the next muscle cell that's down the line. Maybe that muscle cell can use the sugar. But what happens is if too many muscle cells are filled with fat and they're all churning away using fat for energy, then that circulating uh, sugar just keeps going round and round and builds up. And that is the uh, when the doctor will diagnose diabetes, when there's too much sugar in the bloodstream. So um, this is what happens if you're eating too much fat and you can get diagnosed with insulin resistance. And then if you're still eating too much fat and you get lipid droplets, uh, fat molecules in the liver, that can become uh, what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that can cause a form of hepatitis, uh, which uh, is irritation and inflammation in the liver. And this is becoming a rapidly worldwide increasing reason why people are needing liver transplants is because of too much fat in the liver damaging the liver. So this is what happens if you eat too much fat. Uh, it can cause diabetes. It can cause type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, and it can cause liver failure along with obesity. Next, let's talk about vitamins. Nearly all the vitamins that we need 
are made by plants absorbing energy from the sun or nutrients from the ground. And that's how they enter the food supply uh, through plants. And then again, people who are eating animals or animal products are getting the vitamins that the animal ate from the plants. The animal cannot make the vitamins. Vitamins act uh, in all roles and bodily functions, and they're really needed for normal cell function, growth, and development. So what happens if you eat too much vitamins? The, a lot of them are what are called water-soluble, which means they kind of sit in the water, the aqueous solutions in our body. And if you get too much of them, they go out with the water that we pee out. Um, but some are the fat soluble, as I described, like vitamin A, D, E, and K, and they can get stored in the fat cells in our body. However, it's not necessarily a, um, uh, a good form of storage because it's hard to take out uh, those vitamins from the fat cells once they're deposited in them. It's like going to the bank and depositing money, but not being able to make out a withdrawal. So for example, vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin and can be stored in the fat cells of somebody. And so you would think, oh, maybe someone with obesity would not develop a vitamin D deficiency because they have so much vitamin D being stored in their extra fat cells, but they can't make the withdrawal. They can't take the vitamin D out. So even people with obesity who might have stored a lot of vitamin D can still become vitamin D deficient. And in this uh, part of the world, especially in the winter, we still see a lot of people becoming vitamin D deficient, even though they might have a lot of vitamin D in their body, it's in their fat cells and not where it should be, uh, where it's usable. So that is why people are still encouraged to take vitamin D supplements, especially in the winter. So if you still overdo it on some vitamins, uh, like um, vitamin A, for example, um, they can become even toxic to a person. There are certain toxicities uh, for some vitamins. Uh, it's really hard to do that just eating plant-based unless you have a very restrictive diet. Uh, even that, I think, would be very difficult. Um, but certainly there are people who um, are overdosing on vitamins. And in my time working in pediatric ERs, uh, we would often get some family bringing a child in who got into the gummy vitamins and thought they were candy, for example, and ate too many. And we'd have to evaluate if they were getting toxic from this or that vitamin. So that's the, the danger of too many vitamins. Minerals are a little different. Minerals are salts, metals, and trace elements that are found in the ground, uh, things like calcium, iron, potassium. These are absorbed by plants from the soil and water. And again, that's how they enter the food supply. Uh, we need to eat the plants to get the minerals, or for those who would eat the animals and animal products, they're just getting the minerals that the animal ate from the plants. Again, like vitamins, they act in all roles in our bodily functions needed for normal function, growth, and development. A lot of minerals just get uh, urinated out and uh, flushed down the toilet if we overdo it. Uh, this is my symbol for a bank. Uh, it's a little easier compared to vitamins to uh, store and access minerals in our body. If there are too many minerals eaten, uh, they can be stored for later when perhaps not enough minerals are being eaten. And then uh, there are situations where even minerals can be toxic and um, even minerals just eaten uh, not as supplements, but even eaten in a well-balanced plant-based diet, especially if there are diseases. For example, someone with kidney disease has to be careful with the potassium that they're eating. And if they're eating plant-based diet with um, 
uh, kidney disease, for example, they can get into dangers with too much potassium. People with certain liver diseases can uh, develop problems from eating too much iron, even a standard American diet amount of iron or plant-based iron amount of iron. So um, minerals are a little different in that uh, you can overeat uh, them and get into danger, um, especially if you have a disease that's predisposing you to those kind of problems. I'll take a few minutes to talk about salt, which is a mineral uh, sodium chloride uh, that is especially is kind of different in that um, salt, interestingly, is a problem for a lot of people that um, salt is minimally absorbed by plants from the soil. They really don't need it. And uh, so they don't get much salt into them from the oil from from the soil. But what's interesting is that nowadays salt is mined by people and added to food as a preservative and for taste. So you can think back to um, cave people times uh, that they're just eating the plants and the animals and they probably weren't getting so much salt. And there are studies of indigenous populations that have not been westernized, that have not been exposed to fast food or any packaged food. And they're eating salt amounts in the range of 250 milligrams per day maybe up to a thousand milligrams per day in the plants and animals that they are eating, uh, which is much, much less than the typical standard American diet where people are eating 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 milligrams of salt that has been mined uh, and added uh, to the food. So way out of proportion to what uh, we've been exposed to for 99% of our time here on the planet, considering that Homo sapiens has been around for 200, 250,000 years. It's only recently, uh, geologically, that we've been mining and adding salt to our food. Um, salt is essential for nerve and muscle function. Plants don't have nerves and muscles, so they don't need it. But it is essential for fluid balance in an animal's body. And there, you can think that there's so little salt in plants that on the farm, uh, farm animals are given a salt lick. Uh, the farm animals are being fed corn or soybeans or grains or grass, uh, and then that's uh, so little salt that they get a, uh, a salt lick. Uh, out in the wild, herbivores will lick uh, rocks or dry riverbeds to get their salt. The carnivores don't need a salt lick. A lion doesn't need a salt lick because the carnivores are eating the herbivores that have gathered the salt and stored the salt in the muscles uh, because it's essential for nerve and muscle functions. So the carnivore coming along and eating the uh, the herbivore gets plenty of salt from the muscles. Now, humans uh, that are eating plant-based are getting very little salt. Uh, whole foods plant-based, not processed foods plant-based, not junk food plant-based, um, are getting very little salt, uh, much closer to uh, what our historic ancestors probably ate. Uh, and then, uh, so human though who's eating meat is gonna be getting much more salt. Uh, because they're eating the muscles of the herbivores that have gathered the salt. So in this way, um, salt, which we know can cause high blood pressure in sensitive people, um, can be uh, managed by going plant-based. You're eating a whole foods plant-based diet, eating the plants, as I described, have so little salt that you can see that uh, people's blood pressure will go down on the plant-based diet. Um, and then really, uh, for most people, if you're eating too much sodium, it just gets urinated out in the water, in the urine that uh, we don't need.
Okay, let's talk about a calorie. Talk to a lot of people. Um, uh, I've seen like um, people on the street interviews by uh, the news, like what is a calorie? And, and, and people give various answers. And when I've asked this to people, I've gotten some surprising answers. Uh, but in general, uh, we'll say that a calorie is a unit of energy in food that is used to heat the body and move the body. And it's found in carbohydrates and fats and proteins. It's not found in water, fiber, vitamins, or minerals. And pretty much all foods have some combinations of these. So you're going to get some calories in, in just about any food that you eat. Um, and it's the unit of energy that's actually stored in the bonds of the carbohydrates and the bonds of the fats and the bonds of the protein. Uh, on a scientific or chemistry level, we say that calorie is the amount of energy that raises one gram of water by one degree Celsius. That's the most accurate definitions. And that energy, uh, well, it's, can be used to heat water. So it's heating water in our body, keeping us that nice 98.6 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, and then it's also used to, to move for our, our muscles and our energy to go about the functions of our daily life. Um, now the carbs, protein, and fat are the only components of our food that have these calories, have this units of energy. Um, and in differing amounts, the carbs have four, uh, four calories per gram. Uh, the proteins have four calories per gram, but fat, which is a, uh, another form of storage of energy, a larger form of storage from energy has nine calories per gram. So since this is energy that raises one gram of water by one degree Celsius, you can think that one gram of carbohydrates can raise one gram of water by four degrees, uh, whereas fat can raise one gram of water by nine degrees. How do we use our calories that we're eating uh, each day or calories that we've stored in the past for energy each day? So first our basic metabolism. So uh, things like our temperature, the calories are warming the water in our body. And so I put a little thermometer here, 98.6. Uh, we're uh, more warm than uh, the outside around us, room temperature. And that is our energy being burned in our body for heat. And then our basic metabolism, uh, things that we don't necessarily have much control over, but like our heart beating and our breathing and our blinking, uh, things that would be going on uh, even while you're asleep uh, or even while you're not exercising. Uh, that's our basic metabolism. We don't have much control over that, but it's going on kind of in the background every day and every night. And then calories are also used for non-exercise activity. These are all the ways that we move our body throughout the day that uh, we don't really count as exercise, going to the gym, for example. But uh, this young lady who's coloring uh, is using the little muscles in her hand and in her arm, and she's thinking. Uh, that uses calories and energy. As I said before, our brains use a, a lot of sugar every day. Uh, so all of this, and she's maintaining her posture or her core. So all of this is non-exercise activity. Uh, walking up steps instead of taking the escalator, parking further away from the uh, mall when in the parking lot. So you walk a little further, all considered non-exercise activity and encouraged. And then another way we use calories is exercise. Anything that we uh, uh, consider going to the gym or playing sports or running or even walking for some people, anything that we quote unquote use it, call exercise is how we use our calories. 
There's another interesting way we use our calories each day, and that's the thermic effect of food, uh, that we need to process the food that we eat. And that's uh, everything from chewing and swallowing and the peristalsis that moves the food through our body, and then the energy that's required to break down the food uh, to be used by our body. Um, all of that is called the thermic effect of food. And what's interesting is that whole foods actually have a higher caloric demand than processed foods. It's almost as if the processed foods are pre-chewed uh, because they have less fiber and less structure to them that uh, they use less energy. And there was a study that sh showed, it gave people um, uh, food that was processed and food that was whole and measured the calorie expenditures of how much energy it was required to metabolize and process and move that through food through their body. And the whole foods used about twice as much calories to process than the processed foods. So this may be another reason why eating a whole foods plant-based diet can help with weight loss because you're actually using more calories to obtain those calories. And those whole plants have already less calories than a lot of animal products and processed foods. So it's an interesting uh, concept of you applying the thermic effect of foods if weight loss is your goal. So this kind of breaks down into a pie chart um, the basal metab meta your basal metabolism uh, really takes up a large portion of that pie, and you really can't do anything much about changing it. It's your background metabolism. That's not going to change much. The thermic effect of food, you can certainly make that wedge bigger by eating more whole plants, as I described, just because that will use more calories uh, to digest. And then uh, certainly your non-exercise activity, you can uh, make that wedge a little bigger if you're looking to burn more calories, like I said, by taking the stairs instead of the escalator. And then anytime you're exercising, uh, that's going to be a wedge too that you, you have somewhat control over. So if you're looking to burn more calories, uh, those are the steps that you, can, that you can take. Eat more whole plants and move your body more and exercise more. So what happens when fat is burned? Again, I ask adults, I ask families that I'm working with, what might be going on, and I get some pretty interesting answers about that when fat is burned, so I'm going to go over that. It's actually pretty interesting. So fat is combined in our bodies with the oxygen that we breathe in, and what is made is water, carbon dioxide that we breathe out, and as the bonds in the fat are broken, that's where we get the energy. So this is the process, and it turns out that let's say you have 2.2 pounds of fat mixes with 6.4 pounds of oxygen, and that gives you uh, 2.4 pounds of water, 6.2 pounds of carbon dioxide, and 9,000 calories. So you can say, uh, let me think about burning. Um, if you could burn 2.2 pounds of fat in an instant, that would give you 9,000 9, calories in an instant, Remember that calories can be used for heat and energy. So if you could burn that fat in an instant, uh, you could raise your temperature by 9,000 degrees Celsius, which would be a pretty neat trick. But that's not what happens. Uh, let's say you're going to take about two weeks uh, to burn uh, two pounds of fat and all the oxygen that you breathe in over that two weeks 
uh, you're going to make 2.4 pounds of water, what happens to the water? Well, uh, you're sweating it out as you're exercising or you're peeing it out uh, as you're urinating or, hey, you know, we all need some water molecules around our body that some of that, some of those water molecules might stick around in your body for another few decades before being peed or sweated out or even breathed out in water vapor in our breath. The 6.2 pounds of carbon dioxide, we'll get rid, rid of that pretty quickly as we're breathing in the oxygen and breathing out the carbon dioxide. And then what's going to happen to that 9,000 calories um, over, say, the two weeks you're going to take to burn off that fat? Uh, well, it'll be heating your body. It'll be uh, used in exercise and used maybe for some more non-exercise activity, or it'll go to your basal metabolic basal metabolic rate. Um, so that's basically what happens in your body uh, when fat is burned. It's kind of interesting. We kind of use it to make water, you know, 2.2 pounds going in, but 2.4 pounds of water going out. Um, and then the oxygen and carbon dioxide mixed too. All right. So I'd like to sum up that our food is made of water, fiber, carbohydrates, protein, fat, vitamins, and minerals. And these components start in the ground and enter our food supply through plants. That's key. Um, it's really, we can be very much more efficient if we just eat the plants. We don't need the animals to get these important nutrients in our body. And just to think about too much of anything will likely get flushed on the toilet, stored, or rarely can be toxic. And for everyone, just remember that a calorie is a unit of energy that warms our body and does work moving our body. But I'd really like to say that um, I like to take a more holistic approach rather than a reductionistic approach. A reductionistic approach says, uh, maybe looking at this orchestra like, oh, we need to make the violinist better. We need more violin. Uh, this orchestra will be so much better if we just make this violin the key and focus everything on the violin. Um, and I feel like that's how some people kind of can get with nutrition, uh, let's focus on the protein or let's focus on the carbohydrates or this or that vitamin. Uh, no, uh, music uh, all works together. It's an orchestra, it's a concert, it's all the sounds working together that might make you want to get up and dance uh, or appreciate the music however you feel best. And like, likely our food, uh, all the components of our food are working together. And when the food working together gets done right and properly, then our bodies are going to want to get up and dance. Our bodies are going to want to move. Uh, we're going to be uh, so inspired and energized to do whatever we want to do. So rather than thinking about this or that individual uh, instrument or this or that in individual ingredient, let's work on thinking about like whole plants as likely giving us everything that we need in order to maximize our uh, energy and our health. All right, thanks for your attention. You can contact me at my email, Dr. Herbivore. I go by Dr. Herbivore because I'm trying to get families to eat more plant-based, more plant-strong, to eat more like herbivores. You can check out my website at drherbivore.com. I actually have a telemedicine, a telehealth practice in New York and New Jersey for families who want to learn how to eat plant-based properly, especially families that are struggling with obesity. I like to help families uh, that are struggling with obesity by applying the plant-based diet. And then for families that are outside of New York and New Jersey, I also offer uh, e-courses. So you can go to my website and check out my e-courses. This 
these slides are actually pulled from one of my e-course lessons. Uh, there are e-courses about various topics uh, that uh, if you like this content, you can learn more from me uh, in various e-courses available on my Dr. Herbor website. So thank you very much, uh, Marikita. I'm going to pause the slideshow and turn it over to you if any questions have come through. All right. Thanks so much for that. That was very informative. And we have a really nice comment from, from Philip who says, well, that you were talking about what a cal calorie actually is and does. It's rarely discussed. And yeah. yes, because yeah. calories are something that I think, I don't even know what that is. So thank you for that clarification. It's very abstract. We can't see them. Everyone's focused on them. Everyone's looking at the package labels and calories in, calories out. Everyone's thinking about them. But when you look at your plate, your plate, you can't really see them. So um, yeah, it's very abstract. So I hope I clarified that for, for people listening. Wonderful. Yes. And then we got another comment. Actually, this is my brother, um, Mo. Good info and interesting. And he also had a question here. How can I influence the younger generation like my nephews to switch to healthier eating? They live on sodas, chips, and meat. Yes, this is the big challenge. Um, uh, it depends on, on their age. So when my family went plant-based, my three kids were in elementary school. And, uh, you know, it, it took them two weeks to notice that the milk had changed at the table, the, the milk carton. They're like, wait, this isn't the same. You know, it wasn't dairy milk anymore. It was a plant-based milk. Um, so they kind of went with the flow uh, as we uh, improved our, our family's diet. But yeah, the older kids, the teenagers, uh, especially if they have their own car, if they have their own job, if they have their own money uh, and they're out doing their own thing, uh, that can be more of a challenge. So actually um, in my one of the e-courses I offer is uh, how to make the plant-based swish for your family. And I offer a lot of strategies and suggestions um, and what's worked for other families in how to help your family go plant-based. So there's lots of strategies and tips and tricks. Um, I think uh, I'll just say that one of the best ways is leading by example, is showing the younger generation uh, how energized and how healthy that we can be eating as adults eating plant-based. And hopefully that will attract them and interest them and inspire them uh, to, to join along, um, especially if they're seeing other adults that are battling various uh, lifestyle-related issues, health issues. So leading by example uh, certainly helps uh, not eating this and the meat in front of them, uh, but trying to eat and, and demonstrate a, a good, healthy, plant-based diet. But uh, if you're looking for more strategies that uh, might inspire the young ones in your life, then I suggest checking my e-course. I have a bunch. Yeah. Thank you. Definitely. We got another sweet comment from Claudia. Hi, my precious friends. God bless. Thanks for watching us. Yeah, this is so important. We have the younger generation. And so what has happened in these recent years with children's health that wasn't, wasn't a big issue, let's say in the past 20 years, or what can you talk to us about that, Dr. Lee? Well, when I went to medical school in the 90s, type 2 diabetes was called adult onset diabetes because uh, it was thought to occur to adults after decades uh, leading up to the diagnosis of diabetes. But now as a pediatrician, it's no longer called adult onset diabetes. It's called type 2 diabetes simply because kids are getting it. Teenagers, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds are getting it. And it's because of the poor standard American diet and some genetic predisposition, certainly. But yeah, seeing a lot of that, 
the obesity epidemic has affected kids and uh, so much so that the American Academy of Pediatrics in January issued new pediatric uh, clinical practice guidelines, CPGs they're called, and these are instructions to general pediatricians uh, that come out about various important topics over the years and they get updated and um, they are considered the standard of care. So in the past, the American Academy of Pediatrics had a watch and wait a stance on pediatric obesity. But in this January, the new clinical back practice guidelines about pediatric obesity said, watch and waiting is no longer recommended. It's time for intervention. It's time for uh, more intensive uh, dietary and lifestyle discussions. It's time for anti-obesity medicine. And for some kids, even bariatric surgery for the teenagers. So the American Academy of Pediatrics taking a much more aggressive stance on pediatric uh, obesity. The kids are not likely to outgrow it. Uh, studies have shown and so it's time to intervene. Uh, and that caused quite, quite a, you know, I wouldn't say backlash, but a lot of concern, like how did we get here? Uh, are we gonna cause eating disorders? Um, it, it's, been, uh, it's been opened up a lot of discussions um, about pediatric obesity, which is here to stay, unfortunately. And uh, we need to help these kids because these uh, obesity is gonna follow with them through adulthood. And, uh, obesity itself is considered a disease, and then it also increases the risk of 200 other uh, diseases from gallstones to sleep apnea to various cancers to infertility. So uh, unfortunately, we got to help the younger generation because life expectancy is starting to go down in this country uh, because of issues like that. So this is the state of our nation's, the health of our, the children of our nation, and it's very concerning. Gosh, did you say that obesity? What did you say about the two hundred? Oh, it's been uh, uh, it's been linked uh, as a potential cause of two hundred other diseases: heart disease, diabetes. Um, the list goes on. Just about like uh, joint problems, arthritis. Uh, just like I've seen slides of the human body, and it, like every organ um, seems to be affected by obesity. Uh, fertility is affected, affected things and like that. And the back, what about back problems? Back problems, yeah, I've seen young kids with back problems. Uh, they're trying to grow and you know, a person with obesity walks differently. Uh, they have to balance, their gait has to be wider to balance the girth. Uh, their toes are often uh, splayed out in order for improved balance with the obesity. So when young kids are, are their gait is affected, that can, like you said, cause back problems, hip problems, knee problems, feet problems. So this is what we're starting to see in kids. Uh, you know, we worry about the long-term consequences, but also uh, issues like that happening to the kids. Uh, also sleep apnea, it's estimated that 60% uh, of young kids with obesity have sleep apnea. So they're getting a poor night's sleep because of the obesity and uh, that can affect school performance. Uh, they're tired the next day, not able to focus as much, test as well. So these kind of issues, yes, we worry about a child with obesity developing diabetes. Yes, we worry about them developing heart disease, but uh, we, we should also be worried about the test they're going to take tomorrow if they can't take a, a get a good night's sleep, and that can affect their trajectory of their education. So this is why the American Academy of Pediatrics says, you know, we have to be more aggressive with uh, managing and addressing pediatric obesity. 
So unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in this country. Gosh, yes. And I remember in my school photo, really no one was heavy. And now I look at photos of children today and I mean, it's really changed. I mean, how many children are obese these days? Would you say, is there a status statistic? Yeah, it's estimated to be one in five uh, children are with obesity. Um, but then some uh, groups like African-Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans uh, even have higher rates than that. Uh, some age groups, the teenagers, more struggling with obesity. So, you know, there, there are averages, but then there are also some groups that are, are being harder hit with this obesity epidemic. That's so sad. And what about children that are very skinny? They're not getting nutrients. Uh, they're, if they're eating the standard American diet, they're really not getting any vitamins or nutrients. But so what's happening on the inside? Because you would think that those children would be heavy and overweight and obese. Why are they not overweight? Um, well, what do you mean the, the kids who are skinny eating the standard American like, diet? Yeah, skinny and eating a lot of junk food. I know I know some personally yeah. eating all sorts of things. I think, how could they not be obese? And, and what's happening to their bodies on the inside if they're not getting nutrients? Right. Um, pediatricians will sometimes challenge me and say, oh, the, the plant-based diet is dangerous. You know, you can get anemic, you can get this or that deficiency. What about calcium? And I'll raise with them. I was like, well, you've, you've seen a lot of anemia in your practice, right? They're like, oh yeah, I see a lot of kids with anemia. I'm like, are they meat eaters or plant-based? They're like, they're meat eaters, but they get anemia. So, you know, just because you're eating the meat, uh, eating the standard American diet doesn't necessarily mean you're getting uh, enough of the nutrients uh, and in the right proportions. And and certainly with the kids, yes, like as you said, eating so much junk food, uh, it's called junk food because it doesn't have the vitamins and the minerals and the fiber that the kids need. Uh, so yeah, uh, while what, what I actually like about the plant-based diet is that um, the family, the parent, the guardian, the food purchasing and the person purchasing and preparing food is that they're at least thinking about what they're feeding their kids and not necessarily reaching for what's most convenient or what's most cheap or, or uh, easy to prepare, uh, throw in the microwave. So I'm hoping that uh, if they've made the step to eat the plant-based diet and they wanna do it right, that the kid's actually getting more nutrients. Uh, all the vitamins and minerals start in the food supply in plants. So if they're eating more of these plants, hopefully they're getting more, even more of these essential nutrients for growth and development. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the, the plant-based diet might get a, a bad rap. Uh, when you look at the numbers, it's often the, in the pediatrician's practice, uh, just because there's so many uh, people eating the standard American diet, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily protect them from developing anemia or iron deficiency or not getting enough calcium, things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about your clients? Where do they come from? Is it the parents that want to move forward or are there parents that are there and they don't want to be there or their children that are like oh we want to go plant-based but our parents don't want us to be i mean tell us about that right so it's a telehealth platform uh, and i'm licensed in new york and new jersey uh, i'm not gonna see uh, someone under 18 without their parent um, that's not appropriate so i'm working with the parents hopefully uh, also, I'm not advertising to the kids. Um, I want to attract the parents and guardians. Uh, they're the ones that I really want to work with. Uh, and certainly the person preparing the food and shopping for the food, that person has to be on board. So if it's the younger kids, 
then uh, yeah, definitely the parents, but also the teenagers definitely want to enroll them and get them involved. I find that with the teenagers, um, no, you know, no teenager is necessarily worried about their blood pressure. <laughs> uh, that's a very abstract concept uh, to someone. The teenagers, they feel like they're immortal, right? You know, the, that's the developmental stage that they're at appropriately. Um, so uh, rather than talk about blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, or diabetes, what I want to really want to talk to the teenagers is what they're interested in, uh, whether it's music or sports or uh, movies or something like that, because I hope that I can pull in and find someone who's plant-based in their sphere, an influencer or an actor or a musician or someone who, who they can relate to who's plant-based and uh, uh, that can help motivate them and kind of give them a more uh, desire to do it for those kind of reasons. The teenagers are very concerned about the environment. Uh, you know, that's uh, hot on their list. So uh, if I can talk to them about how their food choices uh, affect the environment. I had one young lady who was spending her weekends uh, cleaning up the parks. And I'm like, well, you know, that's great that you're acting locally. Let's talk about how your food choices can impact the global environment and uh, reduce um, uh, waste, reduce uh, the carbon footprint, things like that, that a plant-based diet has been shown to do. So I really want to try to connect and relate with the teenagers um, on their level. I recommend, often I recommend uh, documentaries. So a young athlete, I'll have uh, watch the Game Changers movie, you know, things like that. So, um, but the parents will enjoy or learn a lot from What the Health. Um, so it's nice to have these documentaries out there that can at least, um, especially if someone's coming at it um, completely um, uh, ignorant or, or plant curious, not knowing much about it, uh, that's a good way to get them started and get them on board with this way of eating. Yes, and I do love those documentaries. They're very, very informative. So tell me about casein. Is that a protein? And tell, can you tell me about dairy and casein and inflammation and pain? And how is that all related? Oh, um, I don't know about casein and pain. I think, um, you know, T. Colin, Dr. Campbell, T. Colin Campbell and the China study, I think, I think he wrote about casein. But yeah, casein is um in dairy products uh it's i think i don't know these exact oh, i'm getting some weird stuff on my i don't know about these exact mechanisms but i know that like casomorphin is uh, related to casein and is a um, kind of narcotics that's in the dairy products uh that can make the dairy products from animals uh taste so good and be so enjoyable and it's really supposed to make the um baby cow want to nurse more and grow from 40 pounds up to 400 pounds. Um, yeah, but casein, I, I'm, I, I'm not an expert on casein. I, I feel like I've read that it's associated with some cancers even that, um, yeah. Don't know yeah. what more to say about casein. No, that's good. That's really good to know. I mean, that 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 casein is very addictive, and that's very important. And how do they break these addictions? Children and adults that are so addicted to like cheese is very addictive, addictive, and and the dairy is so addictive. I, I just think about whipped cream and like, oh my gosh, how whipped cream would call me and things like that. And so, how do we break these addictions to this this dairy? these dairy products that are that are hurting us so much and causing inflammation. 
Right. Yes, I, I do know that that dairy products have been associated with inflammation. Um, reducing, I've seen studies reducing dairy products will improve asthma, will improve skin, will improve um, uh, various uh, illnesses for sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's more the myth of moderation also with these uh, food products and. Um, you know, you, if someone's addicted to cigarettes or alcohol, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, just smoke one pack a day or half pack a day or, or just drink on the weekends. It's um, when things have addictive properties in our brains, uh, it's best to be uh, more extreme and disciplined to not have them in your life at all. In a way, it can be easier to not have this constant discussion with ourselves when we're trying to practice moderation. So it's like, oh, I had a healthy lunch, I had a healthy dinner. Uh, I can have this dessert now that uh, practicing moderation is so vague uh, that it's always a negotiation with ourselves. Uh, whereas if you're going to be disciplined and say, oh, I'm just not going to eat this or that dairy product, for example, then there's no longer an argument. Uh, there's no longer an internal dialogue. That uh, food product, that dairy just doesn't exist in our world anymore. Um, so that there just doesn't have to be a discussion and it can be, it can be even easier. People describe a sense of relief. It's like, oh, when I get to the checkout counter at the supermarket and there are all those chocolates, they're there because people, uh, the supermarket knows that people have what's called decision fatigue and that, oh, I made healthy decisions all throughout the supermarket. I'm finally at the checking counter. I can reward myself with the candy bar, uh, because I did so well making all those healthy decisions. But um, if you look at those candy bars and say, oh, uh, they all are milk chocolate and I don't eat milk, then chocolate bars know where that whole shelf appears empty in a way. Um, they're not a choice. They're not, uh, there's no decision fatigue that's going to lead you to purchase the, those chocolate bars. They, they just cease to exist in the world. Um, so in a way, I, I, while in some ways eating plant-based or eating dairy-free or, or doing something like that, uh, can sound so extreme, uh, in a way it can be less restrictive uh, it, because you don't feel like you're constantly having to restrict yourself as you're practicing moderation. You can feel uh, relieved that you don't have to think about that issue anymore. Yeah, that can be a, a big challenge. So what do y'all, what is your family like for uh, desserts and, and healthy desserts? I do eat a lot of fruit what would you suggest to families that are struggling in that area? Well, my, thankfully my family's very healthy. My wife and three kids, uh, we don't have obesity. We don't have any chronic diseases. Um, so we are a little looser with we're plant-based. Um, uh, my one daughter is a vegetarian. My son is a vegetarian at home and eats meat when he's out with his friends. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we have, uh, pretty much plant-based versions of the usual uh, desserts um, around the house for uh, plant-based chocolates. Uh, my one, my one vegetarian daughter during the pandemic, she took up baking uh, plant-based desserts. Uh, so we we have those. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll eat the plant-based desserts. Um, but uh, yeah, it, certainly if any of us had a chronic disease, if any of us had obesity, then I would think I would hope that we would take steps to eat uh, not so much of that stuff. But in the meantime, um, we found a good um, situation for ourselves where, yes, it, it, uh, 
it seems to work for us and keep us healthy and keep us energized. And um, yeah, <laughs> I hope that's not a like do as I say and not as I do kind of situation. But uh, yeah, you know, oftentimes people ask me in interviews or podcasts like, oh, what do you eat? But, um, you know, we all have our own stories, we all have our own journeys. And I'm 51 years old and healthy. I don't take any medicine. I uh, just got some great labs back when I saw my primary care doctor. So what, what I'm eating is working for me. Um, uh, so it might not be right for what's working for you. Certainly someone struggling with obesity or working with chronic diseases um, would eat differently than I would. And I'd support that. So. Wonderful. Yeah. And this has been very, very informative. What, how, tell us again where we can get a hold of you and your final comments, Dr. Lee. Oh, um, drherbivore.com. So doctor all spelled out, uh, herbivore all spelled out, doctor.com. Dr. Uh, so if you're in New York and New Jersey and want to work with me, uh, there's a link. You can make an appointment for a free 15-minute phone consultation. I'll see if uh, we can work together, if we can fit. My programs have uh, me with telehealth visits, if we need blood tests and urine tests to discuss. Um, I have a plant-based chef that will come and work with you if you're new to plant-based or want to learn some new recipes or new cooking skills. So she'll go get online with you kitchen to kitchen uh, to uh, help you in your, in your plant-based cooking journey. Uh, I have a youth fitness expert, which will work with the young kids on strength or conditioning or flexibility. Uh, or even meditation. Um, and then the e-courses, which are for sale worldwide, I guess, um, those are a part, an important part of my programs so that uh, as we're working on various issues, there's home lessons to be done through the e-courses. Um, so yeah, lots of, I do genetic testing for obesity also. There are a simple cheek swab can look at your DNA and find out within a few weeks if you have one of the known 79 genetic causes of childhood obesity. So that would be uh, sometimes reassuring to a family like, oh, I don't, we don't know why Junior is gaining weight so rapidly. And oh, it turns out he's got this genetic condition that predisposes him. Um, so we can get care if that is a situation for someone with a genetic disorder. Uh, so yeah, it's a very comprehensive program uh, that you can learn more about on the website. Or if you're out of state and still want to learn from me, uh, then there are the e-courses available. And it's an e-course on how to make the switch to plant-based eating for the whole family, uh, as, as one gentleman was asking questions about. Um, there's a, an e-course how to um, uh, address childhood obesity with the plant-based diet, so how to learn how to fill up on whole foods uh, so that you don't feel deprived and still can be managing the weight. And then there's a course on how to thrive uh, for your family as plant-based, and that's what I was talking about uh, making sure you're getting all the right nutrients, the where's your vitamin B12 coming from, uh, and that's an e-course on that. For the parent who's uh, already like dabbling or doing the plant-based diet and wants to make sure that they're hitting all the notes, uh, and uh, there's even um, a tutorial in there about how to use an online program to check your, your child's diet, uh, free online program, and also um, uh, information on there like what to talk to your pediatrician about. Because your pediatrician might not know about the plant-based diet, but here's like kind of how to talk to your pediatrician about it so that the pediatrician can be reassured and the parent can be reassured. Uh, so there's a lot of hopefully useful information in there for families that are, are trying to go plant-based and maybe don't have the pediatrician as a resource. 
My gosh, yes. That's very, very important to be ready in case someone says, wait a minute, you know, they challenge and then we're stuck there saying, well, I don't have the information. I'm not, I'm not ready, you know, and you don't want to argue with them and you don't want to fight and you, but you, we have to prepare ourselves. It's up to us to take care of our children and to know what we're feeding ourselves so that we can feed our children in the best manner possible. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yes. So, um, Here's a sweet comment from Claudia. Thanks. Thank you so much for this live stream. It's very inspiring as always. For me, it's always confirmation that I'm not alone. Yes, yes. Thank you, Claudia. Um, especially that's one thing I talk to the families about is that you know when you're eating plant-based, you don't you don't have to feel restricted, you don't have to feel hungry, you don't have to go out and run marathons, you don't have to like super exercise to be healthy. Uh, you can get a lot of uh, health from your foods. But the one thing that is that it can feel kind of lonely. Uh, when you're eating this way, when you're eating differently from everyone else at the parties, at the office gatherings, at the barbecues and stuff like that, that can feel lonely. Uh, so it is important to have a sense of community uh, and gatherings like this where hopefully people don't feel as alone. Uh, find your sense of community, find your community so that you can we can all support each other and uh, and really thrive as we do this. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee, Dr. Irvin War. Mm -hmm. For your information and the presentation and please reach out everybody that's watching and subscribe and do you have a youtube channel i do um but more i i only have a few items on there um when i get inspired i put something up but mostly um on, on another thing you can come to my website is i have a media tab and there's about 20 appearances there over the past two years uh of where i've appeared uh, uh this will go up on the media tab uh, but you can see uh, various presentations I've done and interviews I've done, podcasts I've done, uh, if you want to learn more about my philosophy and how, how I try to help families. So all that's available on my website under the media tab also. Great thank to you. know. All right. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for watching. Wonderful. So namaste vegan, everyone. Namaste vegan. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.